Welcome to the Brothers in Crime podcast. We are brothers. We talk about true crime. We don't take ourselves too seriously. And you shouldn't either. The last few episodes have been a little extra serious. It's true crime. It's all bad, but... Murder ain't fun for anybody, but it's a little easier to stomach murder when it's at least 50 years ago and an adult. Yeah. It's still horrible, but a little more distance there than these... When there's a young kid recent, like... Yeah, talking about Xander's case, and we talked about the Harlem Park 3. I mean, you had a kid who got shot, you had teenagers who went to prison. It seems like we were on this stretch of just extra heavy cases. So today, I'm, I don't want to say excited, but I'm grateful, I guess, that we're taking a step back in time and talking about something that's maybe not quite as heavy. So today, we're going to talk about Lester Gillis. At the top of my notes, I have an angry little man, a.k.a. Babyface Nelson. Just a couple weeks before Christmas 1908, the Gillises got an early Christmas present. Their little Lester was born on December 6th. It wouldn't take long for anybody to realize that this little Gillis wasn't a gift. Uh Uh-oh. Now, let's set this scene, okay? So we're in Chicago. It's 1908. You know what happened in Chicago in 1908? Baseball people know what happened in Chicago in 1908. Okay, well, I'm not a baseball person. All right, so I'm just going to have to tell you. So the Cubs won the World Series that year. It was their second win in as many years. But they wouldn't win it again for 108 years. By 1908, Chicago was booming. There were 2 million people living there. Roughly 34% were immigrants, including Lester's parents. They were reportedly from Belgium. In case you're wondering, I'm going to refer to this guy, Babyface Nelson, as Lester throughout this episode. Because I'm not into giving this dude credit because he was a total, just a jerk. And so I'm not looking to glamorize the stuff that he did. And I think Lester just sounds, I don't know. He changed his name, so I'm assuming he didn't like Lester. So we're just going to call him Lester. If you're Lester, I don't have a problem with it. It's a fine name, but this guy didn't like it. So What did he change his name to? George. George. Nelson. He went from Lester Gillis to George Nelson. Just pretty vanilla, but... Probably everybody was named George, so maybe there was some strategery there. I don't know. Back to 1908 Chicago. Something else pretty big that year. The Ford Model T was introduced in the fall of 1908. But horse-drawn carriages were still way more common than automobiles. The Wrigley Building and Wrigley Field had not yet been built. Teddy Roosevelt was president. The Ottoman Empire still existed. And classical music was referred to as just music. Oh, wow. That's true. You can look it up. The tallest building in Chicago was only 19 stories. Let's jump back into our guy, Lester Gillis. He wasted no time becoming a criminal. As a young boy, he very quickly earned a reputation for being a tough kid. And by tough kid, I mean it seems like he essentially looked for an excuse to fight with other kids or to beat somebody up. Some of this is likely attributed to the fact that he was always short in stature. He never made it above five foot four. So he's an angry little man from the time he's a little man. Yeah, pretty much. We've got Napoleon syndrome just, it's raging here. In 1922, at the age of 13, he was popped for stealing a car and was sentenced to time in the boys' reformatory. He did his time, got out, and quickly went back to committing crimes. He ended up doing a second stint in juvie for joyriding, and while he was inside, his dad committed suicide. Yikes. Yeah, by 14, Lester received the infamous babyface nickname from other members of the gang that he ran with. A fun fact, the earliest gang he was associated with was called the Strippers. You want to guess what they did, what they were known for? Stripping cars. Oh, that's actually really good. So they were a tire thief gang. They would steal tires. Lester would later also be associated with the Tuhi gang. 
Lester was not a fan of his nickname, and multiple sources report that generally people did not refer to him as Babyface to his face because he really didn't like it. He was arrested again and sent to the reformatory for a third time for trying to steal a car. You'll notice a pattern here. When he got out at this point, after this third stint, he was 18 years old, so there was no more juvie on the table for him. If he was going to commit crimes from here on out, he's looking at hard time in the pen. In 1928, Lester met his future bride, Helen Wozniak. Hopefully I'm pronouncing that correctly. There's a lot of consonants, and that's not something I'm good at. The two would marry, and she would stick by his side, ride or die, for the rest of his life, which didn't last a whole lot longer. He was on a path headed for prison or death. Yeah. I was going to say, couldn't be going long. Yeah, he really, he went hard in the paint. I mean, you're picking up crimes starting at the young age of 12. Now, we should stop here for a second. We set the scene of Chicago, and this time period now, we're up to the late 1920s. There's this pretty notorious dude who's running things in Chicago. Got any idea who I'm talking about? That would be Al Capone, who was sent to run the outfit. That's right. You'd be exactly right. So we're firmly in the Capone era. I also think it's important to note that this is during Prohibition. So the 18th Amendment went into effect in January 1920. And it didn't end until December 5th, 1933. So as we're talking about some of these dates, some of these crimes, and what Lester was into, I think that's some important historical context. Now, as Lester looked to graduate from stealing cars and tires, which was his bread and butter, to more serious crimes, he spent a short period of time working for the mob and even likely worked indirectly for Capone himself. The work probably would have included bootlegging, running stills, and other mob-necessary criminal activity. Interestingly, though, our guy Gillis was let go by the mob. Fired. Any idea why? I didn't know you could get fired from the mob. I didn't either, and I thought if they let you go, it was like cement shoes in the lake, that kind of deal. Right. But Cancel Christmas. Turns out that they didn't want anything to do with Lester because he was too violent. Yeah, you heard that right. He was too violent for a, the 30s mob in Chicago. Like, unnecessarily violent. A lot of accounts said that Gillis basically enjoyed shooting people. There was something very wrong with him. Now, with the mob behind him, Lester shifted his criminal activities to robbery. In January 1930, Lester and a crew broke into the residence of a magazine executive, tied him up, cut the phone lines, and took off with about $200,000 worth of jewelry. And that'd be like $3.5 million worth of jewelry today. I was going to say, that sounds like a lot. Yeah, it's no joke. And a couple months later, the crew hit another house and made off with about $50,000 more worth of jewelry from that place. So you can see he hits these houses. He's making a quick payday. And from this point on, he just never looks back. In April 1930, Lester robbed his first bank. He got about four G's, which I mean, that's a lot less than he was getting from robbing these houses. But I guess you need money. It's easy money for them. And this was part of a spree of bank robberies and home invasions. He even stole jewelry from the wife of Chicago's mayor, valued at about $18,000. In her reporting to police, she noted that the person who did this had a baby face. Well, that just tied in nicely with the nickname he had earned. Yes, really. It was like nobody doubted. And we'll make sure we, we post some pics and stuff on social media so you can check it out and see what he looked like. Now, was Chicago city politics just as corrupt back then as it later became? Or? I'm pretty sure Chicago was like born that way. Gotcha. Yeah. Kind of like uh, uh, Lester. Yeah, I think Chicago and Lester. Sorry, if you're in Chicago, I mean, it just you understand. Now, in 1931, Lester robbed a bank in Chicago, but it landed him in adult prison on a sentence of one year to life. And I looked at it in wow. multiple places. That was the sentence. One year to life. So, 
I guess they had some wide discretion then. It was interesting to find that for sure. After serving a year, authorities transported Lester to stand trial for another bank robbery charge in Wheaton, Illinois. But in February of 1932, while being transported back to Juliet, Lester escaped and made his way to Reno, Nevada, en route to Sausalito, California. It was here that he met a guy named John Paul Chase, and the two really hit it off. And when I say hit it off, I mean, this is kind of like Bonnie and Clyde, but like Clyde and Clyde, like these two are just like (laughs) best buddies and bringing out the worst in each other, just having a grand old time. So for the next year or so together, they're just out committing crimes, making acquaintances, forming gangs with other gangsters, doing the kind of prototypical prohibition era gangster stuff that you would expect guys like that to do. So then we're going to fast forward to April of 1934. Lester, his wife Helen, and our guy J.P. Chase, they head to Chicago where they join the Dillinger gang. Like John Dillinger, that Dillinger. Oh, well, I mean, that's always good for your career. Right. He really moves up pretty quickly, right? He goes from fired by Capone, and now he's part of the Dillinger gang. Now, Lester and Helen actually go on a vacation with Dillinger and some of his gang at the Little Bohemia Lodge in northern Wisconsin. But the FBI figured out that they were there and descended on the lodge. However, their attempt to capture or kill the gang would end in serious disaster. As agents looked down the road to the lodge, they could just barely see the lights coming from the building. And they were approaching through these pine trees. It was cold, nighttime, winter in Wisconsin. As the agents approached, they had the lights off on their cars. They were trying to be really quiet. And they even had some agents hanging on the outside of cars because they had more agents than vehicles to transport them. And again, they're trying to be stealthy and quiet. But as they made their approach, some of the lodge dogs began to bark. Oh, no. The agents, quickly realizing that this could go bad fast, got out of the cars and they started to gather around the parking lot to make sure they hadn't been discovered. When a few guys come out of the lodge and three of them get into a car turn on the radio and begin to drive off down toward the agents where they are down this lane that leads up to the lodge. Now, the agents had ordered the car to stop. They announced, federal agents, stop, police. But the men, they'd been drinking, they're having a good time, they got the radio turned up. Apparently, they didn't hear the agents. Fearing that this was some sort of a threatening situation, the agents opened fire on the car and the driver was killed. And it turned out that he was just a civilian conservation corps worker. And the car contained the last few civilians who had been at the lodge that day for a nice, inexpensive dinner. No, come on. So, as you can imagine, we've got barking dogs. We've got agents shooting up a car that's leaving. So now... With innocent civilians, I mean, that must have gone viral on YouTube. Yeah, this is like the original wake (laughs) Yeah, it took me a minute to process what you said. I was like, yeah, dude. Yeah. Everybody on YouTube was like, what? Yeah, this was like the original Waco, right? It's just horribly gone wrong. It's everything that could go wrong goes wrong. All right. So the gang has been alerted thanks to some gunshots and some dogs barking. And remember, this is in like the early days. The FBI at this point, it's very, very much in its infancy. And J. Edgar Hoover is at the helm. The Dillinger gang was on the second floor of the lodge and began shooting from the windows. While agents ducked for cover and tried to find better defensive positions, Dillinger and his men fled from the back of the lodge and were able to sneak away in the darkness of night. But that's not where this part of the story ends. As agents were trying to figure out who was still in the lodge, whether any of the gangsters were around, and also just trying to track those who had already fled, Lester wreaked havoc. He didn't leave with Dillinger. Instead, he went a different direction, ended up stealing a car. He found a nearby home and took its residents hostage. 
When Special Agents J.C. Newman and W. Carter Baum arrived with a local constable, Lester rushed the car and ordered the occupants out. Before they even had a chance to comply, Lil Lester used an automatic pistol to shoot at the men. Agent Baum was killed instantly. He would be the first of three FBI agents Lester murdered. Chase and Helen caught back up with Lester within a month. Helen had stayed at the lodge, was arrested, and subsequently released on parole. They were all staying near Lake Geneva in Wisconsin. Now, in June of 1934, the Attorney General of the United States offered a reward for Lester's capture, $5,000, or information leading to his arrest, $2,500. If we adjust for inflation in today's money, $5,000 would be about $113,000. That's a pretty big reward. Yeah, I mean, I also thought it was interesting, just compared to the way things are today, that they're offering five grand for his capture or $2,500 for information leading to his arrest. So, like, capture was on the table. I don't know about you. I haven't seen any reward posters offering money to capture people lately, especially like notorious murderers who have killed police and FBI agents. But So that literally meant bring him to us and we'll give you five grand. Yeah, if you or, capture him. Or give us a good tip on where he is that we can get him and we'll give you 2500 Yep, that's how I read it. That is really wild to think about. Just imagining if reward for capture were still a thing today, like that would be the ultimate in gig work. I can just imagine like Wanda doing uber and doordash in her downtime she's looking for criminals she got all the flyers tucked up above the visor there she put her scrapbooking skills to good use she's got a nice little flip book attached to the headdress there the seat <laughs> the uber fares get in she's like hey uh flip through them pictures there let me know if you you recognize anybody <laughs> oh man all right side note one of these wanted posters from the attorney general's office sold at a christie's auction in 2008 for 1750 bucks I have a link to that auction in the show notes. Now, shortly after the reward was offered, Lester, John Dillinger, and Homer Van Meter robbed a bank in South Bend, Indiana. A police officer was shot and killed during the robbery, and afterward, as the gangsters fled to Chicago, Lester opened fire on and shot two police officers who were approaching their meeting place. If there was an option between running and shooting, Lester always chose shooting. I gotcha. He was going violence first and... Yeah. Always. Have you ever seen Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Yeah. So there's a scene where we got our guy Lester in there, and uh, I forget the actor who plays him, but knowing the history of it, and you know, he kind of leans out the car and he's just shooting at the police who are following along. And some of the dialogue there is, you know, it's written in a way that I think they did, his character did justice to this sort of persona that uh, everybody said Lester Gillis had. Gotcha. There's also, uh, trying to remember the name of the movie. It might be it might be like Babyface Nelson, but there's a movie about Lester Gillis, uh, 1957, and Mickey Rooney played Lester Gillis. Oh, wow. Okay. In July 1934, Dillinger, who J. Edgar Hoover had dubbed Public Enemy Number 1, was shot and killed. After Dillinger's death, Hoover declared Pretty Boy Floyd Public Enemy Number 1, and he was shot and killed in October of 1934. Oh! You seeing a pattern here? <laughs> yeah, sure. And after Floyd's death... Our guy Lester was named public enemy number one. I'll let you guess how this story ends. Mm. Now, shortly after Dillinger's death, Lester, Helen, and Chase fled from Chicago for California. There's some traveling, a little bit of maybe flying under the radar, laying low, at least these guys' version of that. All right, so they were originally headed to California, Sausalito, I believe you said. And they got sidetracked and what, ended up in Reno or something? Well, so they made a pit stop in Reno on the way to Sausalito, and then that's where he meets his buddy Chase, and they hit it off. And then they're just traveling companions, 
partners in crime from then on out. Okay, we did our business and now we're heading back to California. It, yeah. yeah, it's interesting for how like difficult traveling was at this point in history, right? I mean, cars were not what they are today. They cover a lot of miles. They go from Chicago to California to Reno to Indiana to Wisconsin. They're all over the place. Yeah, but these are also this is a time and people that if they were stuck in the middle of nowhere for a couple of days. They knew how to survive. It wasn't like they were not going to be able to function without McDonald's on every corner. <laughs> oh, yeah, for sure. And they got plenty of money because they just robbed people for a living. Right. Money wasn't a problem. But even if they found themselves having to hide out in a cabin in the woods somewhere where their money wasn't going to do them any good they still weren't going to starve because people at that time knew how to find food and water, even if there wasn't a grocery store around. For sure. During this period, they're able to avoid any major entanglements until November. Entanglements? You mean like Jada Smith got in with her son's friend? Is that what you mean by entanglement? I can't speak. I don't know if they had any of that. What I meant was they didn't actually murder anybody, to my knowledge, or get into any major robberies that raised suspicion about their whereabouts. Oh, no known confrontations. Yeah, they were at least like keeping their criminal profile somewhat low at that point. I gotcha. Until November. The crew was back in Chicago, and on November 26th, they stole a car and drove it to Wisconsin. The FBI's Chicago office caught wind that Lester had been seen driving a stolen car. Two special agents spotted the car near Barrington, Illinois. Lester managed to bring the car around and get behind the agent's car, and Chase, who was with him, fired into the agent's car. One of the agents returned fire and struck the radiator, partially disabling Lester's ride. Now, Inspector Samuel P. Cowley had been assigned to search for Lester out of the Chicago office of the FBI. And he, along with Special Agent Herman Edward Hollis, approached in another automobile and began pursuing Lester and Chase in their now-damaged stolen car. Lester then quickly veered off the highway at an entrance to the Northside Park in Barrington, Illinois, and he stopped the vehicle. Before Cowley and Hollis could get out of their car, Lester and Chase began firing automatic weapons at them. Special Agent Hollis was killed instantly. Inspector Cowley was mortally wounded and died early the next morning. Lester was also critically injured, and Chase helped him into Cowley's vehicle. They managed to transfer a number of guns and other items from the stolen car into the agent's car before taking off. And Helen, during this whole ordeal, had been laying in a field while they were having the shootout. And as Chase and Lester drove off in the agent's car, she jumped in. This incident became known as the Battle of Barrington, and Lester died around 8 o'clock that evening. He would go down as having killed more FBI agents than anyone else in history, and still holds that title today, according to the FBI. I'm glad that there isn't an incident that's been worse than that. So they get word that he's in the stolen car, and they go out and look for him. He gets behind them, which was really creative. So if you are Inspector Cowley, may he rest in peace. Who did Inspector Cowley piss off to get that assignment? To go find Lester. I think I'd be going, wait a minute, do you know this guy? He shoots before people even say their name. Yeah, a lot of these guys out of the Chicago office that are involved in the ones who ended up dying, I think particularly Cowley, Maybe Hollis. This is what they deal with all the time. They're tasked with going after public enemy number one, regardless of who that is, even though that title keeps changing. Which they've all got to know amongst themselves that this guy is super violent. 
like yeah, worse than sure. Billinger. And we see it right at the Little Bohemia incident. Everybody else throws down some cover fire and uses the dark and the chaos as an opportunity to escape. And Lester's just sort of like, hold my beer and kind of goes at him when he really doesn't need to. And that was basically his MO throughout his life. People attribute it to maybe it was his little man syndrome or whatever that his kind of approach to things was like, I'm just going to punch you in the mouth and go from there. There is some utility in that, but it seems like he did it because he actually enjoyed it, not for any practical purpose. And that's a lot weird. But maybe for Cowley and other law enforcement, they got this assignment. Maybe it was like a badge of honor or a sense of pride to be handed the worst case, the most difficult, the most violent criminal or the most notorious subject out there. It's crazy. Like 1934, he's born in 08. So the dude's what, 26, right? So guy didn't live very long. Yeah, I mean, that's like a Tupac lifespan. Yeah, and you think about it, he didn't start committing crime until he was like 12, like real crime, hard crime. So, dude just went all out. After Lester died, whatever became of Chase? Chase is actually the one who got rid of Lester's body, which my understanding is Lester was naked and wrapped up in a blanket and pitched into the side of the road, which is, uh, I don't want to say a fitting end given the way he lived his life, but I'll say not surprising. How about that? Yeah, I mean, he wasn't into fancy things, but it's interesting his friend gave him a real... A proper send-off. Yeah, and Chase, he ends up uh, in Seattle, Washington, and he gets a chauffeur's license at a police station in November of 1934. And his only known arrest at that point had been for drunkenness in 1931, and there hadn't been any wanted posters or anything like that with his photograph and fingerprints issued, so he was able to do this sort of under the radar. And then in December of 1934... Special agents in FBI San Francisco's office contacted some of Chase's former employers and associates, and they start putting the feelers out. They're trying to find him. They're trying to track him down through his known associates. On December 27, 1934, Chase tried to borrow money from some employees at a fish hatchery in Mount Shasta, California. Apparently, he had worked there in 1928. Now, the local police and the FBI were tipped off, and the chief of police there, A.L. Roberts, apprehended Chase. A few days later, December 31st, 1934, Chase was taken to Chicago, Illinois, where he was the first person to be tried under the law that made it a federal violation to murder a special agent of the FBI in the performance of his duties. His trial began in March of 1935, and a week later, the jury found him guilty of murdering Inspector Samuel P. Crowley. We'll talk about him and some of the other victims here a little more in a minute. The Attorney General designated the United States Penitentiary, Alcatraz Island, California, to receive Chase, and his imprisonment began there on March 31st, 1935. That law, was that new law about killing special agents? Was that a result of what Lester had done? I think given the timeline, I think that's possible. I haven't looked into that. My guess would be there was just an awful lot of murdering and we're talking Al Capone era. And before you had Little Lester, you had Dillinger and all these guys were just, they would shoot at anybody. It didn't matter who you were. And so I would imagine just that general trend of lack of respect for law enforcement to the point of murdering them would have prompted Congress to act in that way. I see. I don't know the answer to your question, but my guess is that it was probably such a an issue overall, even with some of these other folks, that Congress just saw the need to enact that legislation. So Chase, as you mentioned, he got sent to the Rock, and things didn't get any better from there. He was transferred to Leavenworth in September of 1954. 
And although he had been serving time for the murder of Inspector Cowley, 20 years later, he still hadn't been tried for a December 1934 indictment that charged him with the murder of Special Agent Hollis. I guess they figured they know where he's at. He's not going anywhere. Yeah, it's curious to me because there is this little thing called the right to a speedy trial. So I'm not really sure why. And there's nothing that I found just doing the research on this that explained why they chose not to try him for two decades. But in April of 1955, a motion was filed in the United States District Court in Chicago demanding immediate trial on this indictment or its dismissal. And then in October, a United States District Judge dismissed the indictment that charged Chase with Hollis's murder. The judge held that Chase's mere knowledge of the indictment and his failure to take action did not constitute a waiver on his right to a speedy trial. So it sounds like when he filed this motion to be tried or to have the indictment dismissed, the government's response was, hey, he knew this indictment was out there. He could have filed this motion at any point in the last 20 years, but he didn't. Now he's asking for a, for his speedy trial, so we have to do something. And the judge is, oh, uh-uh, just because he hasn't said, hey, you owe me a speedy trial up until now doesn't mean he didn't have the right to one. Or that he waived it, because there are instances where you can waive your right to a speedy trial, but you have to affirmatively waive it. You don't waive it by accident, which it sounds like that's what the judge found here was just because he knew it was out there didn't mean he waived his right to a speedy trial. Once that indictment was dismissed, ironically enough, Chase became eligible for parole. After parole had been denied repeatedly, and you got to wonder if he's got an indictment for killing another federal agent hanging over his head, that probably didn't look too good for the parole board. He was paroled from Leavenworth in October of 1966, and he clearly liked California. He went back there a lot, and so after he was paroled, he went back to California, and he worked as a custodian for a while until he died of cancer in October of 1973. All right, so he had a few years out of, and that was a hard time, Alcatraz and Leavenworth. Those are pretty infamous, but he had a few years out. Did he get himself in any trouble in those seven years before he died? I don't see any notation, maybe some minor stuff, but apparently there's nothing noteworthy enough that the FBI included it on their page. He's a senior citizen at that point, so you would think, you would hope, but obviously it's not like there's a, a an age cap on committing crime. True, but it, and the time was also very different from the 20s and 30s to now you're in the 60s. Oh, yeah. It's much harder to get away with some of the stuff that they had been doing back in the day. For sure, for sure. I think, too, this guy, in a sense, the fact the government didn't try him, I mean, it gave him a gift because I, I have to believe that had he been tried of the other murders, it's probably unlikely that he would have ever gotten out of right? prison. Yeah, sure. So can we talk about these agents? I mean, they're really the center of this story. They're the ones that lost their lives trying to protect the public and everything. Do we do anything about Agent Baum? Yeah, Special Agent Willis Carter Baum, who went by W. Carter Baum, was born in July 1904 in Washington, D.C. He attended George Washington University and entered duty with the FBI in 1930, where he was assigned to the New York field office. Later in his career, he transferred to the Chicago field office. Baum was shot and killed by Lester in 1934, leaving behind a wife and two daughters. Baum's wife, Mary, apparently was offered a clerical position in the FBI by Director Hoover after Agent Baum's death. And Mary continued in this role from 1935 until 1944. One of Baum's daughters, Edith, actually worked for the FBI during the summers for several years between 1949 and 1957. And Edith would go on to become a Washington, D.C. police officer. No kidding. How about that? Yeah. 
In 2016, the FBI named a newly opened Milwaukee field office in honor of Special Agent Baum as well. That's pretty cool. Definitely not as good as him still being alive, but it's neat that his wife and daughter carried on his law enforcement legacy there. Yeah, for sure. And the Milwaukee field office, the Chicago field office, they regularly recognize the heroic efforts and the sacrifice that Agent Baum made in apprehending or helping to apprehend Lil Lester. Now, one of the other agents we talked about, Samuel P. Callie. Inspector Callie was born in July 1899 in Franklin, Idaho. He attended and graduated from the Utah Agricultural College in Logan, Utah. He and his family were very active in the Mormon Church. He attended George Washington University Law School in Washington, D.C. and passed the bar exam in 1928. He joined the FBI as a special agent in 1929 and was appointed as an inspector in 1932. I imagine that's like a promotion or something. Yeah, for sure. You're, I guess you're a special agent. And then if you're really special, you get to be an inspector. The only one I know is Inspector Gadget. Mm -hmm. I think that's the same thing. Oh uh, man, kids don't even know. Go Gadget Arms. According to one account, J. Edgar Hoover described Callie as, quote, the sort of man who never could be found in the limelight. And his excellence was his intelligent persistence and his thoroughness at doing what ought to be done. I never had to check a job done by Callie. And that's pretty high praise from a guy who was pretty intense, we'll say. An intense bag of shit. <laughs> uh, in early 1934, Callie was sent to Chicago specifically to hunt down John Dillinger. As part of the Flying Squad, as they were known, Callie and others were successful in capturing Dillinger, who died in a shootout. After Dillinger's death, Callie was tasked with putting an end to Lester's reign of terror. Callie's shootout with Lester resulted in the new public enemy number one meeting the same fate as Dillinger. However, Callie was unfortunately mortally wounded as well. He was survived by a wife and two sons. And Callie's efforts and these agents that were there that night, they did get their man because he died that night too. Yeah, for sure. It's a shame that... They had the, to give their lives to get the bad guy? Absolutely. Yeah, but... Like you said, it wasn't in vain that they were able to, to stop him. I mean, he's a terrible guy. How many murders did they prevent right. by sacrificing themselves? God bless them. You took the words right out of my mouth. There's, you look at the trajectory of Lester. As long as he was walking the earth, more people were going to die. Because when it came to life, Lester gave zero. Yeah. Yep, for sure. Now, last but certainly not least, I want to talk about Herman E. Hollis. He went by Eddie. Uh, he was born in January 1903 in Des Moines, Iowa. He graduated from Georgetown University Law School in Washington in 1927, and in August that year, Eddie became a special agent. Now, Special Agent Hollis worked in FBI field offices in Kansas City, Cincinnati, and Chicago. And some have said that Hollis was a pretty good shot with a Thompson submachine gun, which is impressive given the way that they fire. Tommy guns weren't known for, like, accuracy. Yeah, and this wasn't just folklore because he was good enough with it that he was one of the three agents who actually shot and killed Dillinger in the shootout that resulted in his death. Now, Agent Hollis was survived by a wife and son. His wife's name was Genevieve, and his son was named Laverne. After Agent Hollis's death, his wife relocated to San Francisco and worked there as a stenographer for the FBI for several years. And I just want to point out for all three of these, these agents, there's a plaque at the Barrington Park District in Barrington, Illinois, to commemorate the life, service, and sacrifice of these three men. At the top of the plaque, there's a quote from Nathalia Crane that says, quote, you cannot choose your battlefield. The gods do that for you, but you can plant a standard where a standard never flew. So these men took a stand against evil. Lester was an evil guy. 
and they gave up their lives to protect the lives of others. That quote on that plaque is probably really deep and profound, but I'm too dumb to understand. <laughs> Do you know what a standard is? That's probably the first part that would be hard for people nowadays. I know what a standard is as far as a benchmark or an expectation. All right. So it's a type of flag. Like, oh. If you picture like medieval times and you got the little... Why didn't she just say flag? Well, you know, it's. I don't know when this was written, but I'm going to guess it was written a long time ago. How about that? No clue. Yeah. So there you go. I think, at least the way I understand it, they're saying you can't pick your battlefield where you're going to end up. God does that for you. But wherever you find yourself, you can plant your flag where there wasn't one. I gotcha. That'd be my 2023 parlance. Uh, Gen Z would probably say it in a way that I can't understand. I think <laughs> they might have some trouble with parlance, too, <laughs> being all French and whatnot. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah, that's daggone. The verse of the day recently goes in line with that. Yeah. I'm bad at remembering book and verse and that kind of thing. But it was the one about um, whatever you're doing, do it good because you're doing it for God. Yeah. That's a good paraphrase. That's solid. I know exactly what you're talking about. I'm thinking that's in Colossians. I'm thinking Colossians 3, if I'm right. Uh, yep. Wow, that's good. Colossians 3, 23 and 24. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. Yeah, you beat me to it. Since yeah. you know you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as reward, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. That's impressive. Thanks. Now, the brothers in crime talking about other brothers in crime. So when you showed up at my house today, fortunately, you did not pull a Jeffrey Roberts. That's who we're going to talk about today. No, I also would not drive 750 miles to do that, nor would I leave Palm Beach to go to Utah. Those are all fair criticisms. So today on The Brothers in Crime, talking about other brothers in crime, we've got Jeffrey Roberts, 66, from Long Beach, California, who, as Bob just said, drove an inordinately long trip to Utah to see his brother. But this was not a happy family reunion. No, indeed not. Thanks to the technology of the ring doorbells, we have video of Mr. Roberts from California having a brief chit-chat with his brother at the door and then uh, commenced a shooting. Yeah, so Jeff shows up and they seem to be just having some small chit-chat there at the porch about their mom. And then out of nowhere, Jeff just pulls a gun out of his jacket pocket and starts shooting his brother. And he also uh, shot his sister-in-law. And then he proceeded to set the couple's home on fire using road flares. When police arrive, the house is on fire. And we see Jeff it appears to be just, I think, how did you say it earlier when we were talking about this in terms of his intentions, how this would unfold and how things would end? It's very clear that uh, Mr. Jeffrey Roberts had no intention of leaving there that day. Yeah, in anything other than a body bag. According to the New York Post, he was found to have a 9mm handgun with 23 fully loaded magazines and a 12-gauge shotgun with over 150 shells on his person. And from some clips of the ring doorbell, you can see where he's hunched down uh, there at the front porch area, and he's got his bag and his weapons, and he's just having a Lester Gillis-style shootout with the police. Yeah, and you know what's really concerning to me is I hope the dog's okay. Oh, actually, according to the New York Post, uh, both dogs died in the fire. No! Yeah, I thought you knew. I'm sorry. No, that is crushing, man. So the motive is a little bit unclear. There's some speculation in some articles that maybe it has to do with their mother and the way her estate or money is being handled or the way she's being cared for or something along those lines. That seems to be at least one theory about what could have caused Jeffrey to do this. But uh, also in a GoFundMe page, Scott and Jody's daughter, Kelsey, 
hints at this family rift. She also notes that she believes that her mom is alive because her dad tried to fight with or fought off her uncle and told his wife to run. And she notes that knowing that her dad died a hero is bringing them a a small bit of comfort. Wow. It appears that from what we're seeing online, at least, that whether it's true or not, Jeffrey had it in his head that Scott was doing something funny with some money. It sounds that way. Whether it was true or not, it seems like that's what Jeffrey believed. And still, money doesn't justify taking the life. But it certainly appears that Jeffrey had some intentions showing up with 23 loaded handgun magazines and then his shotgun. Yeah, it's for sure. He wasn't going to chat, obviously. Yeah, and in the little bit of conversation that you can pick up in some of these clips that have been released beforehand, they do have a kind of a brief conversation about Jeffrey indicates he's there to see their mom. And Scott says she's with somebody who's taking care of her somewhere else. And that's really the only conversation that precedes the shooting and then the chaos. So it does seem like maybe there's something to some of that. But again, obviously, it's just heartbreaking. It's not good at all. So mom, obviously, is not a young person. Her boy's here at 65 and 66. I'm Mm. assuming she's got to be in her 80s or more. Gets the news that two of her sons are dead. One killed the other and then committed suicide by police. Yeah, it's awful. Tough day for mom. Awful for sure. Brothers fight, but this is taking it a bit too far. Yeah, it's, it's a whole nother level. Hey, thanks for hanging out with us on the Brothers in Crime podcast. Feedback and suggestions are always welcome. For links and resources related to this episode, please see the show notes or visit us at brothersincrimepodcast.com. We hope you'll save, subscribe, or bookmark us on your favorite podcast site and join us for the next episode. Plant your standard. It's provocative. That's impressive in all 52 states. (laughs)